Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started, I just wanted to um, spend a minute again on the um, breakfast that was out there today from our culinary medicine program. I hope that you took advantage of either the breakfast or learning about food. That's the point. There's also a quarter CME credit every time that's run. So uh, if you spend a little time reading the education there, you can take another uh, quarter credit for it. Um, in addition to that, we do a quiz each time they come, and they've been coming monthly now. And the quiz today was to um, give some idea of a strategy you use in coping with eating over the holidays. And a number of people submitted responses and picked completely at random was this response, and is a winner, plan for treats by adding veggies and healthy meals to the majority or for the majority of your food. And that's a great idea. So that was Stephanie, uh, is it Matner? Okay, uh, come on up. It's hard to read that. Stephanie? And what you win uh, this morning, Stephanie, is a, ba a bag of ancient harvest quinoa and a recipe for quinoa salad. So there you go. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie. Well done. Without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Jeff Munson to come up and introduce today's speaker. Jeff, as you know, is an associate professor of medicine and is our section chief in pulmonary and critical care medicine. And he will tell us about David Lederer. Uh, but before I do that, there's a litany of introductions that need to happen. So this is the Joseph P. Lynch lecture, so I'm going to tell you briefly a little bit about that. Um, so this lectureship was established in 2010 by Joseph P. Lynch. Um, he was a graduate of Dartmouth Medical School in 1971 and then did internship and residency in medicine and his fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan, where he was then on faculty for 25 years. In 2003, he went to UCLA where he is currently the Holt and Joe Hickman Endowed Chair of Advanced Lung Diseases and Lung Transplantation. He's also the Associate Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine there. So this talk would be right up his alley, and although he can't be here today, we're very grateful for his endowment of this lectureship because it gives us an opportunity to bring in experts like David to come and t teach us a little bit more about IPF. So briefly about our speaker today, uh, David just celebrated or is celebrating his 20th anniversary at Columbia. Um, he got his uh, undergraduate, or sorry, his medical degree at SUNY Downstate and then has been at Columbia ever since for residency, chief residency, and now uh, fellowship and now in faculty in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Uh, he is an associate professor there and an expert in advanced lung diseases, particularly interstitial lung diseases and lung transplantation. Uh, he is also the editor-in-chief of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, which is a journal that is growing in popularity and impact. And, um, and then I learned today his most recent accomplishment, which is truly an accomplishment, is that he survived the direct New York to Lebanon flight in January. And uh, given that he has taken exactly one flying lesson, I believe that designates him <laughs> as the official co-pilot for his return flight today. <laughs> so please join me in welcoming David to give a talk on idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Thanks, Jeff. Um, absolutely thrilled to be here. Can you guys hear me in the back? I seem like my volume's pretty good. Okay. Um, so very excited to be here. I loved the flight. Uh, have you all done this? Oh, my gosh. How wonderful. It was late, so I didn't get all of the sunset or, or beautiful um, 
uh, visuals, but even in, in the dusk and dark, it was it was fantastic and cold. So I, <laughs> I'm very happy to talk about IPF, something I'm very passionate about. Uh, these are my disclosures, uh, consulting advisory work and steering committee work in clinical trials for Fibrogen, Galapagos, Verisite, and Roche, and as of this morning, uh, uh, Galecto, and institutional research support from GBT, Fibrogen, and Beringer. So I'm going to start. Um, so how many, how many people are pulmonologists or see pulmonary patients regularly? So it's a very small fraction, right? All the pulmonary folks are clustered. <laughs> um, and um, how many folks in training not in pulmonary? Do have any trainees? So good, a bunch. And then uh, general internists, fantastic. And I assume the rest of you are just visiting. No, the rest of you are... Uh, within internal medicine and other fields. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Some of you are familiar with this family of diseases. Many of you may have heard about them and see it from time to time and then cringe and call in a pulmonary consult. I'm going to try to dispel a lot of the confusion and make this a very accessible condition for any practitioner at all. So we'll start with the term interstitial lung disease, which refers to a large family of lung diseases that are all characterized by fibrosis or inflammation, typically chronic inflammation, or some other processes that I'm not going to talk about, but large fibrosis and inflammation that occurs in the interstitium or alveolar walls in the lung. So here you can see on the left a photomicrograph of normal healthy lung. You see thin alveolar walls, normal alveolar spaces, and you can imagine in your mind's eye that this normal lung structure leads to a very compliant structure. The lung is very compliant. So with very small changes in pleural pressure, we drop the pleural pressure a few centimeters of water, transpulmonary pressure increases just a touch, and we're able to affect large changes in lung volume. Even during exercise, very easy with small changes in, in, pleural, in transpulmonary pressure to take a deep breath. So normally we're not breathless even during maximal exercise from the lungs. Your exercise limitation is cardiovascular and peripheral, et cetera. You have lots of extra lung capacity. You can also imagine in your mind's eye how easy it must be within the millions of tiny little lung units to match alveolar ventilation and alveolar perfusion to achieve normal gas transfer at rest. So normal state, we have normal gas transfer. None of us are walking around hypoxemic. And during exertion, when the pulmonary transit time decreases from three-quarters of a second down to a quarter of a second, that thin alveolar wall and its diffusion properties allows plenty of oxygen to pass and fully saturate hemoglobin, even during maximal exercise capacity, unless you're an elite athlete where you actually might desaturate a little bit from diffusion impairment. So that's the normal state. On the right is a photomicrograph of lung from a patient with interstitial lung disease. This, this particular patient had idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uh, which is one specific type of interstitial lung disease. And I hope you can see the red dot. Um, all of this pink staining material, of course, should not be here. This image should appear identical to the image on the left. And you get a hint in the upper right of little bits of normal parenchyma. All of that pink staining material is collagen, fibrosis, other, other um, uh, fibrils and, and fibers, making the lung stiff. So it's, com it's not compliant. And with those small changes in transpulmonary pressure, we're going to take smaller breaths. So we need to take bigger breaths and generate more transpulmonary pressure, especially during exertion. So a lot of effort and work required to exercise, leading to exertional dyspnea. 
Um, you can also imagine that there's no way that this very abnormally structured lung is going to be able to achieve normal VQ matching throughout all of the lungs. You're going to have all these fibrotic areas that are stiff, have low alveolar, local alveolar ventilation, so low VQ with resting hypoxemia. And during exercise, these thickened alveolar walls, that diffusion impairment, definitely is going to be a problem during exercise with that quarter of a second of pulmonary transit time, right? So they're going to have severe exertional desaturation. So exertional dyspnea, resting, and worsened exertional hypoxemia. All right, so that's the end of my talk. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but that's everything you, you, if you're an MD, that's everything you learned in your first or second year of med school about this disease probably. Okay. So I want to transition before I present a case to you. I want to give you a little bit of background about the biology of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Again, one specific type of interstitial lung disease, and I will put this in more context in a bit. So the pathobiology of this disease is not completely understood. The current paradigm is that there are triggers, I'll mention them, at least hypothesized triggers, that lead to injury of the alveolar epithelium, perhaps the endothelium, perhaps even the small airway epithelium, and that those triggers occur in the, in the setting of a susceptible host or in the setting of some predisposition that is certainly partly and maybe largely genetic in origin. So I'm going to take you through this a little bit, and then I'm going to do more details at the end when I talk about some of the novel um, pathways that are being targeted in, in current clinical trials. Uh, okay, so cartoon of an alveolus, this big circle. We have a little bit of small airway. Here are hypothesized triggers. They include smoking, microaspiration, which I'll circle back to, occupational exposures, a viral infection, certain herpes viruses have been implicated, mechanical strain and stretch, which is my personal hypothesis. I'm happy to talk about that. And air pollution, which is more and more on the horizon. There's now about three or four papers about this. So these triggers, may, these in, largely inhalational problems, may injure alveolar epithelium or, or even small airway epithelium. The small airways, even though it's an uh, alveolar disease, the small airways have now been implicated. Um, mucin 5B, a, a mucin-like glycoprotein secreted by small airway epithelial cells, um, seems to be involved. It's overexpressed in this disease, and that overexpression seems to have a role in, in host defense. It may even interact with the microbiome of the lung, which is now thought to also potentially be pathogenic. There's a couple of nice papers about this. Um, there's a, 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 a promoter SNP in a gene called MUC5B that codes for this mucin 5B. The variant of that promoter SNP increases expression of MUC5B, and all, they all have increased MUC5B expression whether they have the promoter step, SNP or not. Um, that SNP seems to be an extraordinarily strong risk factor for the disease. <coughs> 30 to 40 percent of people with IPF have the variant, as do 10 percent of the people in this room, so it's not highly penetrant. And then moving into the alveolus, the major players are the alveolar macrophage, the type 2 epithelial cell, and the fibroblast which all play roles. You can see the fibroblast here, which I will circle back to a little bit, um, through stimulation by MCP1 and other factors, will release uh, growth factors like transforming growth factor beta, which is really thought to be a major central mediator of fibrosis. Um, Galactin-3, some matrix metalloproteinases, or MMPs, that are thought to play a large role, including MMP7 and MMP1. Um, and then <clears throat> on the next slide, this is a blow-up of the senescent alveolar epithelial cell and the fibroblasts. I said the word senescent. We think senescence of these cells, and no one's sure which cells, or et cetera, but at least of the alveolar epithelial cell plays an important role. 
Um, that's illustrated in this little picture with ER stress, shortened telomeres, and in fact, telomerase mutations are associated with familial disease and sporadic disease nowadays, um, probably even entering clinical realm in the next couple of years because it seems to influence therapeutic options. Um, impaired autophagy and, and uh, mitophagy. So the senescent phenotype has a senescent secretory phenotype secreting connective tissue growth factor, a bad actor that uh, shuttles down into the TGF-beta pathway and others, I'll circle back to it, matrix metalloproteinases. And the cell will also cleave uh, or change latent TGF-beta into active TGF-beta, <coughs> pardon me, um, by an integrin called alpha-V-beta-6. It's also a potential therapeutic target. And then over here in the fibroblast, um, all of these little problems here in the middle, these, these white words, um, uh, myofibroblast differentiation, fibroblast proliferation, collagen synthesis, and also senescent phenotypes seem to be involved. And I'm going to mention all of these pathways later that stimulate fibrosis. So that's a little bit of the background of the pathobiology. I want to transition to the clinical realm. Uh, many of you who do take care of these patients or um, try to avoid these patients because it's confusing and difficult, are familiar with the acronyms, IPFILD, DIPRBILD, AIP, right? It goes on and on. It, did, it took a long time to get these letters to line up in suit, by the way. That was, that was not easy. So that's the only laugh I ever get from this talk. Um, I will make other jokes, and you will not know that they're happening. <laughs> I guess that one worked, too. Okay. So clinically now, interstitial lung diseases, I describe the family. We classify them uh, in the following fashion. We have the diseases of known cause. We have the diseases of unknown cause, which we call idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. If I made this classification scheme, we'd be done. That's the universe, known, unknown. But we made it more complicated. We separate out granulomatous diseases. And then we have a whole host of the other ones that you don't need to worry about, the CAT scan looks very, very strange, and we get the pulmonologist involved. So if you remember nothing I say, literally, if you remember nothing else from this talk, please only remember these six boxes. And I don't know how well that projects. Can you guys read those white letters in there? Okay. So it says medications, radiation, connective tissue disease, vasculitis, hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, and pneumoconioses. These are the major categories of known causes of interstitial lung disease. And the reason this is so important is that in many cases, you can use this information, which is your history and physical exam, to make a diagnosis without resorting to an invasive procedure like a surgical biopsy. I'm going to circle back and illustrate that. But let me just tell you, of course, that getting a good history about medications, including methotrexate, biologics, chemotherapy, and then radiation therapy to the chest, and then looking for autoimmune disease by asking about joint pain, stiffness, and swelling, morning stiffness in the hands lasting more than an hour, dry eyes, dry mouth, ray nose, rash, GERD, gastric regurgitation, et cetera, and doing a good look at the hands, right? The hands are amazing for picking up autoimmune disease. Microscopic polyangitis can masquerade as uh, IPF. I actually just saw a patient where that is the case. And hypersensitivity pneumonitis is the most common fibrotic interstitial lung disease that I see in my practice. Uh, and it is related to mold exposure or bird exposure. Uh, and, of course, usually most people don't have 10 cockatiels in their home. Please do ask about it because some will. Um, but it's mold in the home, in the workplace, in a second home, summer home, vacation home. Um, and some of my patients have vacation homes in New England, and that's the problem, actually, is that they walk in, it's musty and moldy. 
Um, so I ask about um, their ventilation system. Is it humidified? Have they had mold in the home, water damage in the home, other humidifiers, hot tubs, uh, and then water damage? And I ask about birds, and even down bedding now is, is implicated in a couple of studies. And then the pneumoconioses are the occupational lung diseases and doing you know, as, as thorough an occupational history as you can and maybe looking up some material safety data sheets can be informative. That's the most important part of my talk. On the other extreme is the least important part, which is just, this is just a subset of these other diseases that we're not going to talk about off the table. But I do have to show you the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. This is where all the acronyms are. This is the confusing thing. And I'm going to try to make it a little easier for you by saying just a couple of things about it. The first thing is, just to point out, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which I'm going to focus on a little bit more, is the most common of those and is one in which you can often make the diagnosis without requiring a biopsy. I'm going to illustrate how that happens. All of these other ones are the ones that confuse us and are in the radiologist. Any radiologists here? Okay, good. So in the radiologist report, and we look at the report, and we say, we're done. We made a diagnosis. The radiologist said NSIP, so this is what the patient has. And it may not actually be the case. Not that they're wrong, but they might have autoimmune disease or hypersensitivity pneumonitis or something else. So what are the two? Uh, <clears throat> I won't go through all of them. Uh, I will mention unclassifiable disease. It's about 10% of patients. So these four purple ones, sarcoidosis, IPF, autoimmune disease, and hypersensitivity pneumonitis, in my practice, 75% of my patients with fibrotic disease have one of those. So I don't have to start with which of the 200 diseases do they have. I start with which of these four do they probably have, unless there's something unusual that shows up. Um, and of course, some of this I can start to figure out by their age, even before they walk in the door. Older folks will tend to be more likely to have IPF, while younger folks are more likely to have autoimmune disease or hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And then I shake their hand, and I can tell if they have RA or scleroderma, right? So it unfolds actually very quickly, especially when my eyes get on the CAT scan. The other important point is that while we can often make provisional diagnoses of these purple-labeled uh, idiopathic interstitial pneumonias without a biopsy, that is provisional without a biopsy, to really confirm these, you need a biopsy. And we have lots of patients where we look at the CAT scan, the clinical setting, we say, oh, this is NSIP, or this is cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, um, or something else, and that's perfectly fine. But to be confident, we need a biopsy. So I don't think you need to spend your time trying to think of this, which is what I hear all the time. Is it IPF or NSIP? That's not the question you should be asking yourself. The question is, which of these known causes is it? Because then I can target the trigger, and often that heavily informs uh, you know, therapy with medications. So I hope I simplified that a little bit for you. Six orange boxes, okay? So let's move to a case to put everything in context and develop this a little bit more. This is a real case, but I've changed a lot of details. 72-year-old man with diabetes and hypertension, no history of any prior lung disease. He's a former smoker, works in IT, and has had a cough for seven years. It's persistent. It's dry. He has a little bit of thin white mucus in the morning, which all of these patients do, and it's probably related to rhinosinusitis. It's triggered by exertion in cold weather, and he was told he had exercise-induced asthma, which he may have had, and it certainly sounds like it. Um, but then this has persisted, and over two years, he's now having dyspnea with hills and stairs. I hear the words hills and stairs all the time, right? This section of the audience will agree. 
Um, he denies any cardiac, infectious, or malignant symptoms. And on exam, he has some resting hypoxemia. Uh, he has bibasilar crackles and no other features on his exam. So if you only remember two things from my talk, the first is six orange boxes, and the second is this. If they have bibasilar crackles, please think about interstitial lung disease. Now, you're going to have lots of people with heart failure, but don't attribute these crackles to obesity or atelectasis, unless they're post-op day one in the hospital. Really, if you're listening carefully and listening, bring that stethoscope a little bit more caudally. Please, if you hear them, think ILD. Maybe you want to see them in a couple of months and make sure they're still there, but you should be thinking about this. So based on this patient's symptoms, we ordered a PA and lateral chest X-ray. The major finding here is actually that the lung volumes appear small. That's, to me, that's the major finding. You might say, oh, it's a poor inspiration, but it may be non-compliant lungs from fibrosis. Uh, and there are interstitial markings here, and there's a little bit of a posterior spine sign. I know it's not, you can't see it so well on the screen. Uh, and for the cardiologists in the room, we did get this little test for dyspnea. Uh, I think it's, I can't print echo card, echocardiogram. It was, no, sorry, I'm joking around. It was normal. Abnormal chest x-ray, unexplained, of course. You're going to think interstitial lung disease. And then you all ordered spirometry for your dyspneic patient. You might have been concerned for COPD in this former smoker. But what you found is there's no airflow obstruction. We would see airflow obstruction in people with COPD, uncontrolled asthma, bronchiectasis, other conditions. And we picked that up with this FEV1 to FEC ratio, which is a measure of the rate at which air comes out during the forced expiratory maneuver. And usually, if you think about it, you took a deep breath in, you blow out as hard and fast as you can, the air all comes out within like two seconds, right? It's not like you're breathing out for 12 seconds, right? Deep breath in, you blow out, it's out. Um, and what we decide is that you ought to be able to blow out about 70%. As the pulmonologists are going to look at me out of the corner of their eye because I'm not using um, uh, standard errors of the estimate and lower limits normal. But 70% or so should be the normal lower limit. And our patient's 81. That means 81% of their breath came out in the first second. So that's in the normal range. Airflow obstruction be less than 70%. Since it's not less than 70%, there's no airflow obstruction. So we don't think this is COPD or bronchiectasis. But what we do see is that the force vital capacity, which is the total amount of air that came out, is reduced. It should have been four liters. It was only two and a half liters. Lung is not compliant. At resting lung volumes, the lung will be at resting pulmonary pressures, transpulmonary pressure, the lung volume will be lower when no respiratory muscles are acting on it. We also ordered diffusing capacity, and it was also re reduced to 58%. So if you see this, low FEC, particularly low DLCO, FEC can be normal in lots of people with ILD. DLCO is almost always low. So think ILD. And if, what should trigger a workup for ILD? Well, it's the presence of symptoms. And any of those things I showed you, the x-ray, the crackles, the abnormal pulmonary function in that pattern without airflow obstruction, if you happen to check for exertional desaturation and it's present, that should also clue you into it. OK. More junior people in the room. I know junior's not a great word. Early career people and fellows. Um, who is this? <laughs> Everyone, who is this? Johnny Cochran, who was OJ's lawyer. And the famous quip is regarding the glove is, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. So I'm going to adapt that, right, making it sticky. This is the third thing you're going to remember. 
If you suspect ILD, what should you do? You guys don't answer. All right, you guys can answer. Anyone? CT. Do a CT. And not just a CT, but you can do a high-res CT. It rhymes. High-res, which is high-resolution. And we're all used to looking at these. The patient has ILD. We, sent, we order a high-resolution CAT scan, and we get images back that have thin reconstructions, usually about 1.25 millimeters, sometimes thinner, which are harder to read, in my opinion. <clears throat> we'll get expiratory images to look for gas trapping, which would clue us into small airways disease or concomitant small airways disease, like obliterative bronchiolitis or hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The most important part of a, of a high-resolution CT scan is not that it's thin, it should be thin, is this high kernel. High kernel reconstruction algorithm, also called the high spatial frequency reconstruction algorithm, is the uh, uh, algorithm that's used to take the raw data and generate an image. So I'm going to show you this. This is an axial CT image. It's 1.25 millimeters. It's set on lung windows with a center of negative 700 and a width of 1,500. Um, at full inspiration, is this a high-res CT? Looks pretty good, right? Is this a high-res CT? The answer is no. And now I'm going to show you the same exact image, the same, at least the same exact data, reconstructed a different way. Same patient, same, same slice, same window settings, and this is it. Does anyone see a difference? Raise your hand if you think these two things look different. They look different. To my eye, it's like, and I don't know, if you want to come up and look at the screen, you can. It looks, I think I see it there. The left side looks like the television I grew up with in the 70s, and the right one looks like the television that's in my, you know, in my home today. And I see differences. I see more ground glass on the left, and I see more of these lines, these intersecting reticular lines on the right. So getting the right CAT scan can actually influence diagnosis and therapy. I might look at the left one and say, let's try corticosteroids or mycophenolate or something else. I look on the right one, and I'm a little less enthusiastic about that. So this is really important. This can help you avoid a biopsy. It means maybe sending your patient through another CAT scan. It's better than sending them through a biopsy. Now we're going to drill down on CT patterns and move to um, what is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. This is another axial CT image, a different one, of a pattern called usual interstitial pneumonia pattern, or UIP. This is simply a visual pattern on a CAT scan that clues us into the nature of the fibrosis. This is reticulation, and what you're mostly seeing here is reticulation. When I sit with my patients and I show them their CAT scan, I say, look at how smooth the pleura is here, and then follow your, with your eye around and see how abnormal it is here. Now, truly the pleura is normal. It's a subpleural disease, and of course I don't use the word pleura with them, but you can see how irregular all of this stuff is out here. This is all reticulation, all of these intersecting irregular lines. That's all fibrosis. In the UIP pattern, that reticulation is predominantly in the lower lobes, or at the very least is not predominantly in the upper lobes. We do see kind of diffuse distribution at times, which is fine. It is also peripheral or subpleural in nature. And we also see honeycombing, and this is a pretty good example here with thick-walled linear cysts that are often stacked along the pleura. Um, when we see this pattern, in the absence of other severe findings on the CAT scan, like a big pneumonia or tons of ground glass, which is just hazy areas through which you can see lung parenchyma. So if this is the pattern. We call this a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. And if you see this, as you'll see in a moment, if you've ruled out the six orange boxes, 
and this is what you see, then your patient has IPF. You've confirmed a diagnosis and you don't need a surgical biopsy. Here are a couple examples with, this is a lot of fibrosis, but mixed with ground glass. Great examples of bronchiectasis. They look like air bronchiograms. These are airways pulled all the way out to the periphery, a sign of underlying fibrosis. And here's mixtures of patchy inflammation, uh, patchy ground glass haziness mixed with reticulation. Too much ground glass here. Um, you can't see it on the lung windows, but that's a dilated esophagus with an air fluid level. This person had scleroderma. This person happened to have antisynthetase syndrome. There's also a new pattern that was published uh, February of 2018, so a year ago this month, called the probable usual interstitial pneumonia pattern, which replaces the old possible usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. It's awful. <laughs> the difference between the two patterns is that this pattern has no honeycombing, but it does have traction bronchiectasis or traction bronchiolectasis, tiniest airways, in a peripheral distribution. I know you can't see it from where you are, but these red circles, and I apologize for the red color for those of you who are colorblind, but these red, these red circles encircle areas of little bits of, of traction bronchiectasis. The reason this pattern has become, uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm about this pattern, is in that certain clinical settings, this pattern, in combination with ruling out the six orange boxes, is also sufficient to make a diagnosis of IPF without requiring histological confirmation. I'll illustrate why that is in a moment. This is what our 72-year-old man had. He had this probable usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. So we've identified that he has interstitial lung disease. It's fibrotic in nature. There's a probable usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. So what do we do next? Do we do a biopsy, trial of steroids, antifibrotics, something else? Who wants to do a biopsy? Who wants to do, give corticosteroids? Who wants to initiate antifibrotic therapy like profenadone? And who wants to do something else? Some of you. So I want, to, I want to do something else, which is I want to investigate known causes, which we didn't do. Go back to the history and physical exam. This is the critical element, is don't rush into a biopsy. Try to avoid steroids if you can, because they're awful, as you know. Um, first, see, to go back to the patient, talk to them, and do a focused exam. Think of these six orange boxes. Look at their hands for RA and Raynaud's and sclerodactyly, and transpapules and dermatomyositis and mechanics hands in antisynthetase syndrome. I see so, much, so many cases of idiopathic um, inflammatory myopathies, antisynthetase and, and dermatomyositis, and often I'm the first one to pick it up because I looked at their hands. Um, I mentioned all the history things too. I mean, you gotta, you gotta do a thorough history like I talked about when I was going through the six orange boxes. It's also recommended to do serologic testing. The newer guidelines came out in September on diagnosis of IPF recommend a very broad panel largely focused on rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, and, and uh, dermatomyositis and antisynthetase syndrome. Um, this is our patient had positive ANA and a borderline rheumatoid factor, saw rheumatologists, there's nothing, no, no autoimmune disease, so that's been now excluded, and this is very common that we'll see very low titer positive serologies. Uh, so in summary, 72-year-old man, chronic dyspnea and cough, hand pain, uh, sorry, forget the hand pain and stiffness, I changed the talk. <laughs> uh, minor flooding in the home, which I didn't tell you about. Bilateral crackles, low FEC and DLCO, no airflow obstruction, elevated ANA, borderline rheumatoid factor, the chest X-ray, CAT scan as described. So what we would do at this point is put everything into this algorithm, which is absolutely confusing and terrible. I apologize. 
but this is the new algorithm. Did we find a known cause? So we're going to say we did not. We did a history and physical, and there was no known cause. So we look at the CAT scan pattern. He has this probable pattern. If he had the UIP, we'd shuffle down right to IPF. But with the probable pattern or other patterns, the next step is, in some cases, getting together with the radiologist, maybe additional pulmonologists, sitting in a room discussing the case. And in many cases, you can come up with a diagnosis. If not, that's called MDD, or multidisciplinary discussion. If not, you can consider bronchoalveolar lavage. I generally don't do it. The guidelines conditionally recommend this. But if you read the actual guidelines, it makes no sense to do it, as you'll see when you read it. Surgical lung biopsy can be considered. Um, and then either back to the table for discussion or maybe confirming a specific diagnosis. So this table is not something you would memorize, but maybe you would look up when you're trying to figure out what your patient has. Your patient has fibrosis on the CAT scan, meaning reticulation, and you've excluded known causes, and now we have a grid. We have the CAT scan pattern on the left and the biopsy pattern on the right. We haven't really talked about biopsy. The CAT scan pattern, we talked about UIP, we talked about probable UIP, and then we see a lot of people with fibrosis that really don't fit either of those categories, which we call indeterminate. And then there's things that are diagnostic of other conditions. So we'll just focus on these three. And I'm not going to talk very much about these different biopsy patterns. Um, instead, what I'm going to do is illustrate what you ought to do if you don't have a biopsy or before you have a biopsy, which is the following. You look at this indeterminate for UIP column, and you replace it with, I have not done a biopsy. And this column actually corresponds to what you should do it with these CAT scan patterns without a biopsy. And I wish this was included in the guidelines, and it was not. So we'll start with UIP. I mentioned earlier, UIP pattern, you've ruled out known causes. That's a diagnosis of IPF. Go down to indeterminate, indeterminate pattern, uncertainty. Uh, we give it this label, of, that's not a diagnosis, but indeterminate for IPF. And at that point, if you've done no biopsy, it's very difficult to make a diagnosis of IPF in that setting. There are circumstances where you might be able to do it in a multidisciplinary discussion, um, but that's still a challenge, and you might consider a biopsy at that point. And then probable UIP is the pattern I discussed before. I don't expect you to read all of that or know all of that, but those are the circumstances where a probable UIP of unknown cause can lead to a diagnosis of IPF. Um, essentially, lots of fibrosis would be probably enough. Otherwise, you can consider a biopsy. So our patient sounds a lot like IPF. There's always a differential. This is the common differential in my clinic. Um, so maybe do we do a biopsy in the probable UIP patient? Maybe, but I try to avoid it at all costs. There is risk associated with it. Patients who are sick need a lot of oxygen, have low lung function, pulmonary hypertension, frailty, multiple comorbidities. I would avoid it. I would only do it if it's going to inform therapy. That's the key question in my mind. Is it safe, and will it inform therapy? And if the answer is no, I won't do the biopsy. I'd rather have uncertainty. <clears throat> so just to quickly say, our patient, after a group discussion without biopsy, we diagnose this patient with IPF. So I'm going to move. So it's, you're all experts now, right? It's good? OK. I can go through it again. You're good? There is a, there is a uh, category of disease called interstitial lung disease with autoimmune features. Mm -hmm. And this guy does fit into that category with a positive ANA and a positive rheumatoid factor. What did your rheumatologist say about that? Yeah, so the question is, there's a category called interstitial pneumonia with autoimmune features, or IPAF, which is 
unfortunately very close to IPF. It's IPAF, terrible. We've, we, we need help from the cardiologists, right, to like come up with better acronyms like HEFPEF. Anyway, so IPAF is, a, is an established entity now um, where uh, we have interstitial lung disease. They don't have an established autoimmune condition, but there are features. There's positive serologies. Maybe they have Raynaud's or something else. And so what I, I do is I use that term as a kind of a modifier. So I would say this patient has IPF and with IPAF. So I wouldn't change my diagnosis of IPF, but I would note the autoimmune features. Um, but it's critical to get a rheumatologist involved so that we can figure out if we're right or wrong, right? Is, there, is this rheumatoid arthritis that we're missing and they need hand and wrist x-rays to confirm this? Um, so I don't let the autoimmune features hold you back from making a specific diagnosis if autoimmune disease has been ruled out. Monitor them. They may get RA in three years, right? Yeah. <coughs> Pardon me. So I want to briefly talk about treatment. This is the most important part of treatment. It's not all the medications I'm going to show you in the next five minutes. It's really these things. This is what I spend my time on. This is what my nurse spends her time on. Smoking cessation, supplemental oxygen, uh, assessing daily and nocturnal oxygen requirements. Pulmonary rehabilitation is so important for these patients. Um, and then, of course, weight management, age-appropriate vaccination, clinical trial enrollment, and lung transplantation. I don't have slides on lung transplant, but I'm very happy to talk about it during the Q&A. And then drug therapy. So I'm going to talk a lot about drug therapy, but just remember, these are the important things. These are the things that help your patients the most. So coming back to pathobiology, there's a drug called nintetinib here in green. Um, and I chose green because I was coming here. No, it's actually green in the publication. But um, nintetinib, which uh, is FDA approved to treat IPF. Uh, and what it does is it blocks tyrosine kinases downstream from certain growth factors, including FGF1, uh, L1, VEGF receptor, and PDGF receptor. Uh, it also inhibits many other tyrosine kinases downstream from other growth factors. We think these are the growth factors that are implicated the most. Uh, the pivotal clinical trials, large clinical trials, are called IMPULSUS-1 and IMPULSUS-2. They were identical, multinational uh, double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trials of nintetinib, 150 milligrams twice a day compared to placebo, over one year with a primary endpoint of decline in lung function. These are all of FEC. These are all patients with um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. These are not Kaplan-Meier curves. They're simply the mean changes in lung function over time. This is baseline lung function at zero and then de declining over time. I don't know how well you can see the placebo arm, but it drops by about, on average, 200 cc's over a year. It's what we see in all the clinical trials. Nintetinib dropped by 100 cc's over a year. That was statistically significant. We think it's clinically significant. We'd love to see the curve go up, meaning improving lung function, or stable, perfectly stable lung function, and we see neither. These drugs don't help your patients feel better. It doesn't turn it into a lifelong chronic disease that they're not going to die from. It slows the progression. The context with your patients is critical. This is Impulsus 1. Impulsus 2 had the same primary endpoint with the same finding. I'm not showing you that slide. Mixed results on multiple secondary endpoints. <clears throat> Pardon me. But led to FDA approval. Um, I'm going to talk about side effects in a moment. But led to FDA approval, and I, I prescribe it, and I think many of our pulmonologists prescribe it. The other drug that's FDA approved is over here. Profenadone acts through multiple mechanisms uh, that I'll mention on, on the next slide. Three phase three trials. One was equivocal, so a third one was done. Uh, and pooled results, meta-analyses results, and results of two of them 
are positive, with, again, reducing the rate of decline in placebo compared uh, in, in uh, perfenidone compared to placebo. This is a summary of those medications. Both reduce the rate of decline by 50%. The major side effect with nintetative is diarrhea. can be controlled with uh, Imodium, uh, loperamide. Uh, perfenidone, loss of appetite. It's listed as like 10%, but 100% of my patients have loss of appetite, 100%. So anorexia, nausea, photosensitivity. Um, I won't talk about the enzyme metabolism. Nintetative can cause, or at least theoretically, increased risk of bleeding and thrombosis, so we avoid it in people on full-dose anticoagulation therapy, dual antiplatelet therapy, but also people at high cardiovascular risk. This is through, because of its role in the VEGF pathway or vascular endothelial growth factor pathway. Um, Perfenidone has some minor drug interactions. Fluvoxamine, uh, omeprazole, smoking lowers levels. Both need liver function monitoring. Uh, Nintenative has been reported. Uh, some drug-induced liver injury cases have been reported. Uh, and then there are strategies to help them tolerate it, the GI side effects. These are the uh, current guidelines recommend from ATS recommended treatment with nintenative or perfenidone. Intacid therapy, I'll circle back to. This is very controversial. Of course, oxygen, lung transplantation, pulmonary rehabilitation. And for the sake of time, I won't go through all of these drugs that are recommended against. I'll simply say... Warfarin was studied in a placebo-controlled trial. It didn't help IPF, not surprisingly. If your patient needs anticoagulation for a different indication, please treat them. Prednisone, azathioprine, and NAC combined increased mortality. So prednisone is not a benign drug in IPF. Uh, I'll skip through the rest for now. So I want to move to um, kind of the, what's on the, in the pipeline, the cutting edge, what we're going to see in the next few years. Uh, I know you've already had a talk from Fernando Martinez on the cleanup study of antimicrobials. <clears throat> that study is continuing to be enrolled. It's a large, simple, or pragmatic trial. 500 people around the country randomized to long-term antibiotics, at least a year of antibiotics, versus standard of care, no placebo. They just go to their pharmacy and get the antibiotic. Um, pretty easy study to enroll in. Uh, I don't know how easy it is to participate in if you're taking antibiotics every day. Um, but hopefully this study will be over in a few, uh, in about a year get some results. There's a similar trial being done in Europe. The other pathway of interest is over here, pentraxin 2, which is a, a human protein that can uh, uh, stimulate macrophages to turn into their uh, less fibrotic phenotype or kind of M2 phenotype. Uh, this drug has been studied in a phase 2 trial, small study, about 100 people, um, decline in FEC, I think over six months. Uh, yeah. Uh, in the uh, treatment arm compared to placebo arm, this is in people on concomitant perfenidone or nintentative, and those not with similar findings, some significant, some not by hypothesis testing. Um, but enough in this small phase two to hopefully here, here, do a phase three. I haven't heard anything about a phase three. And then this pathway uh, is a lipid pathway, lysophosphatidylcholine converted to lysophosphatidic acid that binds to the lysophosphatidic acid receptor 1 on fibroblasts and stimulates fibrosis. Two drugs that inhibit this pathway have been studied. The first one in a phase 2 trial, it's called GLPG1690. That'll be on the CME, on the CME so remember that. Um, this is the decline in lung function in the treated arm. This is decline in lung function in the placebo arm, a lot of overlap in the error bars or confidence intervals. Small study, but again, enough signal to lead to a phase three trial, which is now enrolling around the world um, at this time. LPA1 antagonists also in that pathway recently published these two uh, lines that are red and blue 
on therapy with this inhibitor of the LPA1 receptor. This is placebo. So an important signal there that's encouraging. However, uh, LFT abnormalities and cholecystitis ended the trial, and that drug is not being pursued anymore. Um, and then at the very end now, pamrevlimab is a monoclonal antibody that inhibits connective tissue growth factor, also a central mediator of fibrosis that goes down into the TGF-beta pathway. Uh, in a phase two trial, apparently still unpublished, but publicly presented at the ERS meeting in 2017, not 2018, 2017, in a six-month trial, reduced the rate of decline in lung function. This is the rate of decline in lung function over six months in treatment and percent predicted FEC and in placebo, a very similar effect estimate to what we see in profanidone uh, and in tentative trials, so very promising. And this phase three trial will be starting later this year. Um, and then I want to mention microaspiration. Antacid therapy is controversial. It may have some benefit in observational studies, which I don't believe, and it may have harm that we're all familiar with. Um, but believe it or not, laparoscopic fund application has now been studied in an NIH-funded randomized trial um, showing differences in the, the decline of lung function over 48 weeks that did not reach statistical significance in a secondary analysis using better statistical methodology. It was significant. And um, there were very small event rates of adverse events, but non-significant differences in death, 3% versus 18%, 9% versus 29% had a decline in lung function or died. Uh, and then this is the difference when you add in acute exacerbation. Small numbers for a disease that's fatal with a surgical procedure that is invasive but potentially helpful. <clears throat> I don't know if a phase three trial will ever be done. This may be all the data we have. At the very least, I think it does point towards microaspiration as a, as a potential cause of this disease. It's the first time I've ever really considered this as a serious hypothesis. Um, and these are the ongoing and upcoming trials. I've mentioned most of these. Um, TD-139 inhibits Galactin-3, uh, which acts on macrophages and uh, epithelial cells, uh, inhibiting Galactin-3, galactin I guess, uh, is able to bring uh, uh, receptors like TGF-beta-1 receptors together, bind them together. TD-139 is an inhale therapy, inhibits that, and I guess there's less signaling. I still have to figure out exactly what's going on there. This inhibits that alpha V beta 6 integrin I mentioned earlier, um, and then this is a J and K inhibitor, um, transcription factor inhibitor, or a growth factor, um, uh, downstream factor, I think from TGF beta, I could be wrong, uh, that has too many zeros in it. Um, so that's the end of my talk. Crackles, think ILD, get a high res CT, don't biopsy before you get a histrine physical. You have two drugs that are FDA approved and lots of drugs in the pipeline. It's an exciting time in the field, to be honest. And hopefully we're going to have multiple options for therapy in the next few years. That's the end of my talk, and I'm happy to take questions. Thank you. Questions? The pulmonologist has questions, right? <laughs> you didn't mention, uh, and uh, the genomic classifier that mm -hmm. started to be used. Yeah. I can, yep. So the question is, what about this new genomic classifier? Um, it's called Invisia. Some of you may be familiar with, um, gosh, I can't remember the name, the one for lung cancer where you do airway brushings to get a molecular signal on whether or not the nodule you went to try to biopsy was malignant or not from the airway brushings, which is fascinating. So this is a, a test that is now being done more widely at many centers in the U.S. 
um, where on a transbronchial biopsy, you can send it off. They do transcriptomic analysis. Uh, I can't remember how many genes. It's over 100 different genes in, in this. It's, in it's proprietary, I think. Um, and it can give you a signal of whether or not it might be a UIP pattern or not if you had done a surgical biopsy. Um, it, a couple of papers have been published. It looks like the, um, the specificity is fairly good. And in a person where you suspect IPF, maybe a positive test is enough to be, make you comfortable giving them an IPF diagnosis. I think the greatest utility is in these people where it doesn't quite meet the criteria. You're not completely sure. It could be, say, hypersensitivity pneumonitis or idiopathic nonspecific interstitial pneumonia. Maybe that test has a role. I don't think it has a role in people with consolidation or lots of ground glass or people who clearly are not going to have IPF. And I think there will be a role. And as centers are accumulating experience, I think it may become a mainstay of in the diagnostic realm. Is multidisciplinary discussion um, and or interdisciplinary clinics standard now, in your opinion, for ILD, or is it still higher order sector? Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, so that's the problem is it's recommended to do it, but for probably 95% of ILD patients, they're never going to have, you know, people getting together at a table. It's just not practical in practice. So at an ILD center, it is the standard. Um, but we need a way to accomplish accurate diagnosis outside of ILD centers, and that, that's, a, that's an unmet need. Yeah. Here. From a general's perspective, it seems like a lot of these patients end up on steroids. I guess I'm wondering how hard they, do, do they use, I mean, are they, how hard should we be trying to get them off steroids, or you know, are, are, are they sort of stuck once on, or they do provide some symptomatic benefit, and you know, how do you guys think about that? Sure. The question is the role of steroids and, and how they should be used or stopped in these patients. Um, I think the first thing is to try to make the, the most accurate diagnosis you can, because if they really have IPF, you shouldn't be giving them steroids, or if they've been put on steroids and it is IPF, I agree, you should try to get them off steroids. I know it's hard to get people off steroids. If they have a different kind of ILD where there's an inflammatory phenotype like idiopathic NSIP that has ground glass on CT uh, or hypersensitivity pneumonitis with ground glass on CT or some other autoimmune diseases, then prednisone or other corticosteroids may be appropriate. Um, and we also use other immunosuppressants, and this is not FDA, this is off-label FDA, uh, but like mycophenolate and azathioprine. Um, that obviously have fewer, they don't have the glucocorticoid toxicity, generally are well tolerated. And nowadays in my practice, I prescribe mycophenolate much more commonly than I prescribe corticosteroids. So I think it's getting the right diagnosis and then tailoring the treatment plan to that. Okay. What's your, Cryobiopsy, yeah. So the question is, what's, what's my opinion or experience with cryobiopsy, um, which is done by bronchoscopy, a, cryo, a cold cryoprobe is placed in, you let everything freeze, and you pull it out and let everything bleed, but you, you pull it out and you get a larger piece of tissue. Um, it's being more, and more, wide, more widely used at many centers, particularly in Europe, but also in the U.S. Um, and the buzz that everyone is trying to sell us is that while these pieces are not as big as a surgical lung biopsy piece, um, it's enough to make a diagnosis. And I have never believed that. I, I just think that there's so many problems, even when you have the surgical biopsy, 
that getting a few pieces from the right lower lobe, it might look very different in the right upper lobe. Um, or you're going to get more central disease and maybe not pleural disease unless they, you gave them a pneumothorax, which is fairly common with the procedure. Bleeding is a serious problem. One center had such serious complications, they put a moratorium on it until they could figure it out a little better. Then they restarted. They published that experience. Um, I, we don't do it at our center. Uh, I'm, I'm not endorsing it at this time. You mentioned the esophagus, so Rich has a question. Yeah, that woke me up. <laughs> do you think that there should be a seventh box, which is doing Bravo pH testing or impedance testing or really looking for GERD in that column, notwithstanding the data on latinism, which of course is invasive, but and I have less fear about PPIs, of course, but it, should there not be more... Uh, more investigation of that, either with the bronchial or lavage, looking for gastric content, mm -hmm. pepsin, whatever we might look for, or some other way to, to prove this. That's a great question, right? And it's the question is, you know, if, if GERD is causing IPF and you have a patient with IPF and GERD, shouldn't that be in that known cause category? Shouldn't it be a seventh orange box? And maybe that's true. Um, our center is beginning to do um, high-resolution manometry and, and pH testing or impedance testing on selected IPF patients who seem to be good surgical candidates. Um, I, I think that the field in general, it, there are two camps about diagnostic classification. One is we should be, we should be dividing IPF into more phenotypes or endotypes. Um, and the other is all these fibrotic patients progress the same way and have bad prognoses, and we should be lumping them together, just like the pulmonary arterial hypertension world has who group one, uh, right, with all the associated PAH categories that are all treated the same. So I don't know where we're going, and I'm happy to tell you which camp I'm in pri privately. Um, but at the very least, we're trying, people are saying, should we get rid of the word idiopathic, since we're identifying you know, genetic polymorphisms associated with it, and maybe GERD, and of course smoking, and there are known risk factors. So we're, there's some movement in that direction. It's a good question. This is more of a radiology question, but when you say high-res CT, is that definition the same in multiple centers, or is it different in different places? Uh, well, it is, it's the definition given in the Fleischner guidelines, which is a radio, radiological chest society. In the ATS guidelines, uh, diagnostic guidelines published in September, uh, and the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation has also put out a kind of standard protocol um, that includes this kind of reconstruction. Is it done everywhere? No, um, it's not. And I think 10 years ago, most people showing up in my office with a CAT scan, it was not high res. And nowadays, a lot of them are high res. There's been a big improvement in the care these people are getting um, outside of academic centers, which is so wonderful to see. So if, I would just encourage you guys to talk to your radiologists and see, you know, are you getting high res or how can you signal to them that you want a high res at our center? It took a lot of, you know, figuring out. No one wanted to put a new order set in there for ILD scan. Anyway, but it, I think it's really important. And, and for me, the pattern recognition over years of doing this is so critical. Just from my perspective, I can look at a CAT scan and often I won't need a biopsy because I say, you know what, this looks like all the other patients I've seen with HP. Even if I biopsy them and it's not HP, I'll think it was sampling error. So, yeah. Graham? Um, or, sorry. You, your cartoon very nicely showed how there are multiple mechanisms, multiple ways to get the same outcome. Uh, are there studies on combination therapy? Uh, 
Is that going to be a big field? Yeah, the, the good question is about whether or not combination therapies used are being studied. There are two studies I'm aware of where uh, combination therapy was studied to look at, you know, pharmacokinetics and to look at side effects, not large enough to look at efficacy signals. Um, and there is a little more GI problems, as you would expect. Drug interactions are m modest. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Um, and, but no one is doing it, in part because the drugs are about $100,000 a year, and in, insurance companies don't even want to pay for one of them. So it's not happening. Perfenidone will go on, will go generic within a few years, and that may change things. Um, you had mentioned anorexia as a side effect of the perfenidone. Does that affect their quality of life or worrisome weight loss? Absolutely, yes. Uh, it's, it, is a big, it is a big problem. Um, what we've tried to do is... Uh, work closely with patients to make sure they're um, doing their best to tolerate it. And what I mean by that is we tell them they have to take it with full meals. If they're, if they're going to skip a meal, I tell them to skip the dose. Because then if they take the dose without food, they're not going to be able to eat dinner. And then they're just in this cycle. And I say, if you get in that cycle, stop it, let things cool off, and then restart. They often get proton pump inhibitors. Uh, on Dancitron as needed for nausea, and we do, I think, did I say this, a slow-dose titration over at least two weeks, but sometimes we extend it and we give them a lot of leeway on, on, the, on the dose titration. Initially, we give them a capsule, or they're not tablets. They, the dose is nine tablets a day, three, three TID. Um, but we start them out at one, three times a day and have them work their way up, and some can get up to nine, some can get up to eight, some can get up to seven. Um, so we work with them, and, and there are plenty of patients who won't be able to tolerate it or just decide it's not worth the impact on my life. Um, and then we can try the other drug, Nintenidib, or they may opt to not be on therapy. Yeah, but it is a problem. Yeah. This may be a longer question than you want to answer in the last 30 seconds, but um, lung transplantation is the definitive therapy for this, given that all our treatments only slow the rate of decline. <coughs> Also, know that some people have a very precipitous fall off in their right. disease. So, when do you refer patients? When should they be referred in that course? <clears throat> yeah. So, the question is, when do we refer uh, IPF patients? And that is, I agree, Jeff. That's the most important thing for everyone to know about transplant is that you should refer them when they're diagnosed. And I think it's very hard to have that conversation on the very first visit. I have incorporated it now into my first visit. Um, and that took a long time for me to figure out how to do that. But that is very important because, as you heard, these patients can have precipitous drops. I didn't talk about their exacerbations, but 10% per year will have exacerbations. They're much worse than COPD exacerbations, very high mortality rates. Um, so that, that it is at the time of diagnosis. You can never refer too early, and unfortunately, many people are referred too late and run out of time. <coughs> Great. Well, please join me in thanking Dr. Larry. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jeff, for having me.